Welcome to Hearing the Music, a show where we explore musical masterpieces and the meaning behind them. This season, we're doing a deep dive on Johann Sebastian Bach's St. John Passion. My name is Mark Bertrand. I'm a novelist and a Christian minister, the pastor of Grace Presbyterian Church in Sioux Falls. I'm here to help unpack the ideas of the gospel narrative that Bach set to music. Across the table from me is Delta David Geyer, music director of the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra. David is our guide to this incredible music. In this episode, we'll also be hearing from musicologist Marcel Switzer. Thanks for joining us. This is episode three. It is finished. The chorale that we've just been listening to comes immediately after an important moment in the story of the crucifixion, where Jesus, from the cross, has entrusted his mother Mary to the care of John, the evangelist, and said, woman, this is your son, son, this is your mother. That example of Jesus's thoughtfulness, even in that moment of greatest suffering, inspires the words that we've just been hearing In translation, uh, the words are these. He took good care of everything in the last hour, still thinking of his mother. He provided a guardian for her. And then there's a turn. O mankind, do justice, love God and humanity. Die without any sorrow and do not be troubled. So even in this moment, we are encouraged to follow the example of Christ on the cross to do good without regard to the consequences. Well, David, I think it's a really striking moment where the chorale is once again applying the lessons of the story to us in a way that that encourages us to live in imitation of Christ. There's also something really important here, I think, about uh, our relationship to suffering. Indeed, that's really what strikes me is when I think about when Bach would have written this, again, 300 years ago, that there was a lot more suffering in the world at that time. Uh, we, in, in the Western world uh, of the 21st century, we've distanced ourselves from suffering, isolated ourselves, uh, put a little antiseptic on the suffering, particularly that of death, which would have been much more present in the congregation that would be hearing this in Leipzig in 1724, for whom death of family members, infant mortality, things like this would have been very present parts of life. So, so comfort, encouragement would have been um, on par with, with the sort of didacticness of, of a passion like this, just simply the retelling of it, and also sort of hand-in-hand hand with, uh, with the encouragement of their, of their faith and to walk faithfully and to follow Christ. It's to identify with Christ in his suffering. One of the differences in the way that this text treats suffering and the way that you know, generally we often think about how, let's say, religion deals with suffering is that what's happening here is Jesus' example is not being offered as an antidote to suffering. It's Correct. not be like Jesus and you won't suffer. Right. The assumption is if you follow a suffering Savior, you can expect to suffer. The question is how? 
you suffer and, and what that's like. And I think the comfort comes in the idea that Christ, too, has suffered. Well, and it, there's a transformative power in suffering, um, which is kind of foreign to the way that we think about suffering. Suffering is, is, is something to be avoided um, and to be gotten through. And certainly there is that aspect. I mean, if you look at Christ's own ministry, you know, the vast majority of his time was spent in the alleviation of suffering. But the value of suffering for us as individuals, the transformative power of looking to Christ, looking to God, looking for, for, for meaning in, in the midst of suffering. And what better example of meaning in the midst of suffering is there than Christ's redemptive work on the cross? That's right. There's a passage in the epistle to the Hebrews that speaks of Christ as a high priest and says that because of his humanity, because of his experience of what it means like to be one of us, we have a high priest who can relate to us in our suffering. And I think that is a point that this chorale really brings out very well. Uh, and it sets up the, the sort of central portion that we're going to discuss today of of. The passion, it's in the center of the second part, but it, it's really, really the central meaning of the entire passion. And, and the way that Bach said it is so meaningful um, and brings it to, brings it to, to not just to life, but, to, but personalizes it. It really does. I think that also leads to a question that we should think about before we dive into the center, which has to do with uh, Bach's own belief about these things. I mean... It, we look, it's, it's certainly possible for a musician to take a great text and set it to music beautifully, but not to believe in the text that, that he's setting to music. That happens all of the time. Sure. Um, do you have any thoughts about Bach's own, kind of where he was in relation to, to this faith? What I get is from the music itself and how the care that he took with it. I mean, you can look at it as merely inventive, um, we've looked at that in, in, a, in the first two episodes of this is, is the sort of ingenuity that he uses to, to bring the text to life. And when I was in little conductor school, you know, going to conservatory, the, the way that our professors would talk about Bach usually was along those lines, that he was, he was a church musician. So of course he, he took the text and he was really inventive with it. But, um, but there's a, there's a deeper layer here of meaning uh, for those of us who have spent our life steeped in this, in this repertoire that it, it affects us quite deeply, and I think it comes from a, a sincerity on, on Bach's part. Um, there are some indications, since as uh, the relatively recent uh, discovery of Bach's own Bible um, and the notations that he made in the margins of that Bible, and there's been, you know, a high level of scholarship around this. In the 1930s, this Bible was rediscovered and had kind of gone under the radar, and so this is a, a Bible commentary that Bach possessed in multiple volumes. It was a, a, a work put together by a theologian, uh, Kaloff, so they refer to it as the Kaloff Bible, so it included the text of scripture and also commentary on that and is full of uh, underlining and occasionally marginal notes that Bach made himself. 
And we actually were fortunate enough to speak to a Bach scholar about this, someone who has worked on this uh, Bible and, and has some interesting observations on this. Yes, my friend Marcel Switzer um, is a musicologist in the Netherlands, and Marcel and I have worked together in Hungary at the Crescendo Summer Institute for, for many years now. And as a matter of fact, he's at work right now on a book about Bach and the Holy Spirit. So we asked him for some insight, and Marcel was kind enough to share some thoughts. In the study Bible, we first of all find out that Bach was someone who studied the Bible um, very carefully and uh, must have put quite an amount of time in it. And there we find some underlinings of passages in the Bible from which we actually can conclude that he was indeed um, theologically very well informed and it meant a lot to him personally as well. So we have some insight into Bach's faith in general, but one of the questions we were curious about was whether Bach had made choices in the St. John Passion that might give us some insight. So we asked Marcel about this and he had some interesting observations. But in Bach's time it became more custom to treat the gospel text actually as a kind of opera, and uh, it was a fashion in his time to stay away from the literal biblical text and to use libretti that emphasize Christ's suffering, and particularly the physical suffering. What is particularly interesting in the St. John Passion is that Bach, at the one hand, takes these famous verses by Brockes over, but there has been some editor at work who actually made the text less violent, and Bach made the choice to take the gospel account from John as the main part of the text. And in that sense, he is, I would not say old-fashioned, but at least traditional. And so it, the, the, the fascinating aspect of the piece is that it is a mixture of respect and awe for the traditional gospel text, and it is contemporary in that sense that it uses these uh, verses by Brockes, but then at the same time, it reduces the amount of physical, violent details in favor of a deeper spiritual content. Thank you, Marcel, for that. We are reaching the heart of the St. John Passion now, Movement 30, which is an aria titled Assist Fulbracht, It is Finished. This is a moment immediately prior to the death of Jesus, where he declares these words, it is finished. Uh, the music here is stunning. It's, it's very different in some ways. The text is really important, though. As we approach this aria, we're actually going to do this in a little bit of depth because that's how important this is. So we're going to look at the first part and then the second part. In the first part of the aria, the text in translation reads, It is finished, O comfort for the ailing soul. The night of sorrow now measures out its last hour. That text, with all of the, the emotion to it, is rivaled completely by the music, which is absolutely evocative of these emotions, David, and, and quite unique for the piece, isn't it? Indeed. So Bach really pairs down his forces um, for the, the effect is of, of focusing 
on this text. So you have a viola da gamba, you have a, a lute, and you have an alto voice. Um, and so it's quiet, it's soft, it's slow. The tempo marking is molto adagio, which very slowly. Um, just, again, sort of laying emphasis on the importance of this text. Um, pathos is a word that, that comes uh, firmly to my mind for this aria. Uh, we're drawn into this moment, not just the sufferings of Christ, but, but the completion of, of his mission, his life's mission at this moment. It's my favorite moment in all of Bach, this aria. Um, for the for this for both the A and the B sections of it. So let's take it apart a little bit uh, with the A section uh, with this text. Es ist vollbracht. First, um, you'll notice that the lines, the vocal lines, they descend um, as you might expect, like a bowing of the head, an expiration, with the exception of one word, trost which is consolation, right? Es ist vollbracht, o trost. It is, it is finished. O consolation for afflicted souls. And every time the soloist sings the word trost, it goes up, uh, which is almost sometimes leaping in terms of, of, it, of its expression, the vocal line, uh, to this moment of, you know, this is something we look towards, for our comfort.
Now, out of the blue, like a bolt of lightning, we have this text, Der Held aus Judah siegt mit Macht. The hero from Judah triumphs with might. Where does this come from? This, this totally contrasting music, which brings us into another place, and why does it belong here? music comes straight out of the world of opera, which Bach uh, borrowed from copiously. In the world of opera, this would have been called a battle aria, a rage aria. Um, you would expect to find it in Handel's Julius Caesar or something like that. And again, the text is that the hero of Judah triumphs in might and closes the battle. Um, I think this speaks of a, a really deep theological principle here that when you pair these two texts and these two contrasting musics um, and how they fit together, that we have, it is finished, but yet a triumph. Uh, it, it reminds me, Mark, of, of the theological principle that Christ taught throughout his ministry, that, that the, the first will be last and the last will be first, that that in, in death we find resurrection. I mean, the, 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 the reverberations throughout, you know, centuries of, of religious teaching are right here in this aria. Yeah, we talk about in theology the, the contrast between humiliation and exaltation. And honestly, those words do not do justice to the reality behind them. Uh, this music, I think, goes a farther way to doing justice to it. What Bach has done here in combining those two uh, emotional moods in, in giving you sorrow, and then in the midst of sorrow, this sudden outburst and expression of joy is a really fine way of expressing the, the different facets of meaning behind the crucifixion. There's a mystery, looking from the outside in, why people would celebrate the death of Christ, why that death would be an occasion for joy 
why it might be seen as a triumph and not only as a tragedy. And I think that the Zarya captures both sides of it. A tragedy, certainly, in the sense that there is a, a suffering that takes place, a death that Christ dies. But in that death, Christ gains a victory. And the question that you have to ask yourself is, what is the meaning of the words, it is finished? You know, what, what does Christ mean when he says it is finished? And I would say this is a question many people think they know the answer to, but really don't. When you hear those words, it is finished, you're likely to think, oh, he means his life is finished. He's about to die. And so these are words he speaks just meaning kind of like, well, I'm about to go. It's done. My life here is over, something like that. But in fact, what is finished at the cross is the work of salvation. Jesus is finishing the thing he came to earth to do. And that's where the note of triumph comes in. Because what he's come here to do is to win a great victory over death and sin. It's a victory. You can actually go back to the very beginning of the Bible and discover the roots of. Hmm. If you go back to the book of Genesis, in Genesis 3.15, a passage that is often referred to by theologians as the Proto-Evangelion. It's the first hint of the gospel. This is the, the scene where Adam and Eve have fallen, and God comes down and administers justice. He, he gives them a sentence. He speaks to the man, he speaks to the woman, but before he does that, he speaks to the serpent. And in Genesis 3.15, he tells the serpent that one day, the seed or offspring of the woman will bruise the head of your seed. And from that moment forward, there's a conflict between the, the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, and the offspring of Satan. And that, that question, who will be triumphant? That's a question, if you know your Old Testament, that is, is played out in the drama of the kings of Israel, the anointed ones of Israel, and then Christ is the inheritor of that conflict and comes as the great hero to win to bring about the victory. It reminds me of a, another passion representation that our listening audience might be more familiar with, and that is Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, controversial film, um, but the opening scene has Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane praying and that the cup would pass from him, and he ends by saying, nevertheless, your will, not mine, be done. And as he get, while he's praying, there's the, the serpent is in the garden, snaking around. Mm-hmm. And when Christ gets up to walk out of the garden, he crushes the serpent with his heel as right. he walks out of the garden. So this is kind of a little similar in this aria because this, this text of the hero of Judah triumphing in might, it's, it's not scriptural. Mm-hmm. Right? It's brought in. And this goes in this very long line of passion representations, which are just not simply uh, a, a, an explication of the text, but rather an artistic representation, which brings in these other ideas and pairs them in order to illuminate, uh, humanize the gospel even a little bit more, perhaps. Um, so in, in my mind, you know, Mel Gibson was extending that with his film, uh, right. successfully or not, but at least that scene, I think, is uh, it, it, it's a parallel to what we're looking at here. 
Right, and I think he's artistically he's trying to address the challenge, which is is giving a context to the crucifixion that takes into account the thousands of years of history that go before it and and are necessary in order to understand the significance of of those words. It is finished to know what is finished in that moment. It also speaks of Christmas, does it not? <laughs> that that the the salvation project. Of, yes. of, of God uh, becoming human. Um, we think of Christmas as a, as a nice tale or mm-hmm. something warm and fuzzy, but uh, when, uh, when the prophet says uh, he'll be called Emmanuel, which means God with us, that that would be you know, the, the incarnation. Right. Uh, and the purpose of the incarnation was to bring salvation to the entire world. And there's a, a really good... Um thread when it comes to thinking about the atonement, uh, Jesus's death on the cross that ad- addresses that, where we think about the necessity of Christ's humanity. So Anselm famously asked this question in a book of his circa 1000 AD, um, why the God-man? Why was the incarnation necessary? Right. And the answer that he comes up with is that it was necessary for Christ to be fully human and fully divine in order to make the atonement for sin that was necessary. And we won't go down the, the rabbit hole of tracing all of the logic there, but, but that was a, a thread in the death of Christ that really emphasizes the, the need for it, what it is that, that he came to do in terms of... Uh, atoning for sin, paying the price for sin. Bach, following the lead of John's gospel, is really highlighting for us another thread. We get that sense of, of the, the atoning sacrifice, but we also get this really strong sense of the triumphant king, right? And, and throughout our discussion, this question of kingship has been at the forefront. Is Jesus a king? If so, what kind of kingdom is, is he king over? That sort of thing. Now we see the kind of king he is, a king who triumphs over death, which is the enemy of his people. And he triumphs over death in his own death, which is a 16th, I'm sorry, 17th century theologian, John Owen, wrote a book about the atonement, the title of which is The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. And I think the title alone encapsulates that sense of triumph, that the hero of Judah has triumphed over what? Over death. That's it for episode three. The mezzo-soprano Denise Gomez sang the aria we discussed in detail. Special thanks to Marcel Zwitzer for lending his expertise to the project. At the website, you can listen to our entire interview with Marcel and check out our suggestions for further reading. Visit us online at hearingthemusic.org. Thank you.